0: Just to let you know where we're headed, um, this is technically week 31, so this is uh, the end of the story. Uh, We've gone through the whole Bible since last September. It's been quite a journey. I hope you've been blessed by the whole process. Uh, We are going to add on one week, and so next Sunday, um, and I'm I'm excited about the the worship service because we're going to take one week and sort of go back and review. You know, in school you always want to review. So, so we're going to look at the whole big picture, God's story, and what it has to do with our story. Uh, but what we've done is we've actually woven it through the worship service. So we're going to talk about parts of God's story, have some worship, more of God's story, have some worship. So the two are going to flow together. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but if you're in town, um, I think it's going to be a great service. As we sort of look at God's story... And our story, and weave that through the whole worship service. So that's going to be next Sunday. And then a lot of you helped me write the sermons for the summer. So uh, the summer sermon series are together. There's actually, if you're interested, there's an insert on, at the information desk of just the various topics. Uh, I actually had over 30 ideas submitted. So we only had 13 weeks. So sorry, not everybody made it, but I um, tried to look at those topics that I thought would speak to a lot of people. And so it's back there. We're going to post it on the website just if you're interested in a particular topic and you want to try and make sure you're here for that Sunday. Okay? So that's where we're headed um, through the summer too. But today we come to what is undoubtedly one of the most perplexing books in the New Testament for a lot of people. Chapter 31 is, of course, the book of Revelation. And it occurred to me as I was preparing this sermon that... Uh, We might be good to use the analogy of national treasure. Now, I don't know if you've watched the first one, but in the first one, there is actually on the back of the Declaration of Independence a treasure map. You just can't see it. And so all these people for 200 years have been looking at the Declaration of Independence, and they've been missing it. Because you need this pair of glasses, Uh, And so if you have those glasses up in the corner and you turn over the Declaration of Independence, then you suddenly see what people have been missing. It's sort of a coded document. And it struck me that that's part of the problem with the book of Revelation. That you can look at it, but if you don't have the right lenses as you look at it, you can end up saying, this is just really a weird book, I'm not interested it's about multi headed um, dragons and birds and eagles with wing, uh, eyes under their wings. And there's just all this weird stuff. And so people sort of walk away. Well, I actually want to take the audacious goal of trying to make Revelation a little understandable. And part of the, the reason, uh, a part of how we understand Revelation is you really need to go back and put it in its setting and why the book was written. What, what its purpose was. Uh, it was written by John, who wrote the fourth gospel. It was also written at almost the end of the life of all the apostles. John was one of the last apostles still alive. It was in early 90s A.D., 90 A.D. or somewhere around there. John had been convicted by the Romans, part of the persecution... And in his old age, he had been exiled to this little island off of Turkey called Patmos. And he, as far as I know, would stay there till he died. I mean, he was done. They just locked him away on this island. But while he was there, God came, Christ came, and gave him this revelation, this picture of what is to come. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. The picture of what is to come was so important because the church was just really entering a period of persecution that would actually last for another 200 years. From about 60 A.D., ballpark and what you want to call a persecution, till about 300 A.D., this new religion called Christianity faced strong persecution. And in fact, that persecution would grow. Stronger and stronger. It began in pockets with governors and mayors and officials. And then it grew and grew until it was empire-wide. And and the intent was to wipe out Christianity. And so John is writing in 90 A.D., and and God knows that the Christians, while they think it's tough right now, it's actually going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. And so how are these Christians going to hang on? Because Jesus is gone, and very quickly, all the apostles will be gone. Most are already dead. Only John, maybe one other, is left. And very quickly, everybody who was an eyewitness to Jesus is gone. If you think about even when John writes... Only the oldest in the crowd might have been children on the day of Pentecost. Only the very oldest in the crowd might be able to say, I heard Jesus teach. I saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead on Easter. Only a handful of people would still be there, and soon they would be dead. And all of those people who had that strong faith and that personal experience were going to be gone as the church enters 200 more years of persecution I, that's hard for us to get our head around that's basically fudge a couple decades the entire history of our country imagine that we're going to face the entire history of our country's time frame in persecution knowing that my great-great-great-grandchildren will be persecuted, how do you hold on to your faith? How do you not give up? Now, they obviously didn't know how long it was going to last, but there was no end in sight for them. And short of God fixing it, and making that persecution go away, and making everything okay for the church, how do you hold on to your faith? Well, there's one other answer, and that is for God to say, I know what's happening, and I know what's going to happen. I have a knowledge and, in a sense, a control over what's coming. I'm going to take you on this journey. But you see, there is a message in that God is in control. God is in control. He's still on his throne. May not feel like it today when I'm in prison. May not feel like it when I have to go face the lions in the Colosseum. But I am holding on to that fact that God is in control. We see this at the end of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 6. The angel is speaking to John. It's at the end of all the information that God has given him. And in verse 6, the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, that same God sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I need to let you know what's coming, God said, so you're prepared because a tough time is coming. Now, out of that, John writes to the church a coded message. And that's part of why we struggle to understand the book of Revelation. What it's called, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, it's called apocalyptic literature. The apocalypse was another word for the end times, but there was a whole kind of book written, types of book, that was all about that. And part of the characteristic was that these kinds of books talked about otherworldly things. They talked about creatures that had the body of a lion and the head of an eagle, or or whatever it would be, and they talked about things that hadn't happened, and Daniel, you see, the book of Daniel had part of this. But you see, part of that was a coded message. Because the Christians were already being persecuted. And if you found this book called Revelation, you'd say, well, what's in it? It's in one of these Christian books. And just like a lot of Christians today, a Roman official would read it for a little while and say, well, this is a comic book. It's not dangerous. It's not anti-Roman. It's not propaganda. It's not a danger to us. And they wouldn't worry about it. They wouldn't destroy it. It wouldn't cause any more persecution for the Christians. It wasn't seen as an anti-Roman book. But if you had the right glasses, you could look at this book. If you understood the code, you could look at this book and say, oh, that's talking about Rome. Oh, that's talking about the local officials who are persecuting the Christians. And suddenly there would be a message the Christians understood that the pagan Romans didn't even get and didn't even worry about. But it was a message to the Christians right then, facing persecution, a message to give them hope and guidance as they had to go into this uncertain future. So despite all of the images of Revelation, there is a very clear message John was trying to give those early Christians. And it has been for 2,000 years a message that whenever Christians suffer, whenever Christians face persecution, it is a message that again resonates with Christians. And they read it. And with some digging and understanding that code, they get that same message. And that's what I want us to focus on today. This was, for me, a challenging sermon to do the book of Revelation in one sermon. But what I want us to try and do is sort of go to that 5,000-foot level and focus on what is the core message that John was trying to give to the Christians through this book, this message of hope. I want to read one passage. And if you're not into Revelation, this will stretch you because it's that, that imagery and all of that. But I want us to read one passage. It's over in um, Revelation 2. Because the first message of John is that Jesus is watching. As you're in the midst of persecution, as you're in the midst of struggles, please know that Jesus is watching and he understands. So let's read Revelation 2, 12 through 14. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. I understand what it's like to be a Christian in Pergamum, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless... I have a few things against you. There are some among you, and I want to stop there. Because I don't want to focus specifically on Pergamum. The beginning of Revelation has seven letters to seven real churches in southwestern Turkey around the island of Patmos. They were real letters written to real churches in real situations. And every one of them is a little different but all of them contain this same basic message it's about jesus who sees these seven churches and sees their situations where they were living in their towns some of them were facing specific persecutions this throne of satan is almost undoubtedly about a pagan temple where there was a lot of satanic power and out of that was persecuting the christians And the first message that Jesus wanted the church to know is, I understand where you're at. We're all that way, aren't we? We want somebody to understand our pain. If we're having pain, it just helps if somebody understands. If somebody will at least nod their head and say, boy, that's really tough, isn't it? It is, in a sense, a comfort to say that Jesus sees what we're going through. He's not just a removed God up on his throne in heaven having a great time in a perfect world. He is a caring Savior, a caring older brother who is watching and is aware of what we're going through and is saying, I appreciate, I see, I value your faith, I value your commitment that you're holding to my hand even though it's costing you. But there's a second message in that Jesus is watching. And it's the end of that passage. In almost every one of the letters at the end, he also says, but I have this one issue we need to talk about. I have this one concern. You know, as kids, when our parents say, but, say, like, oh, go, here we go. But in every case, Jesus and, and what he's really doing is he's, he's holding them accountable to say, I know it's tough there, but listen, I need you to be faithful. I need you to be true. I need you to not start fudging on the corners because you're facing persecution. This isn't the time to waffle on what you believe. This isn't the time to say, well, Jesus probably didn't really mean that. We can sort of bend the rules here. No, what he says is when the times get tough and you're suffering, that's when you need to ratchet it up a little bit and work harder to be true, to hold on to the truth, to stand for what is right. And in every one of those churches, he challenges them. So the fact that Jesus is watching as we go through difficult situations is on the one hand, it is an encouragement. But it's also Jesus sitting in the front row watching us live life. Saying, come on, you can do it. Hang in there. That coach that says, come on, you got to stop that other team. You can do it. Work harder. Fight harder on the defense. I know you can do it. And that's what Jesus was saying to them. And that same Jesus, I believe, is still doing those same things for us today. He's watching us. He sees our world. He sees the craziness around us. And he shakes his head too sometimes. Says, I'm sorry what you're going through. It's tough. I understand. But he also does say, but I need you to hang in there. I need you to not get soft. I need you to stand tall. Be what I need you to be right now, even when it's tough. The second message of Revelation, I call it, there is a spiritual battle. My, my point is this. It's so easy when we're in a tough time in life to focus on the physical, the immediate circumstances. And But in that process, we can miss the fact that there is a much bigger spiritual reality behind what's going on. And what Revelation shows us is, This may be more than just a city ordinance. There may be a spiritual battle going on here. This may be more than just a disease or unemployment. There can be spiritual stuff going on behind it. And part of what we need to understand that in this physical world, we don't see that bigger spiritual world, but it's real. And that's a, a part of what makes Revelation hard for us to understand. Because it opens the door for us to see a spiritual world that we're not used to. To see into a spiritual world. Revelation says John was taken up into heaven, so he saw stuff we haven't seen. And through his second-hand account, we're trying to see what he saw. But the basic message of that is there is a bigger spiritual reality behind the physical world we get focused on. There's something more than just a prison cell, as these Christians were in prison. There's something more than just a lion in the arena. And you need to understand there's something much bigger going on. Let's go back and read one more passage of this spiritual world. Revelation 4, and we're going to read a longer passage if you want to follow along, eight verses. And then we'll do a little bit of looking at what are we being told here. This is really sort of at the end of the seven letters to the seven churches, and the whole nature of Revelation changes from those local churches up into heaven. After this, this is John, after this I looked... A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I read that passage because I knew if you don't enjoy the book of Revelation, that would be a stretching passage. It's a head-scratcher. But if you step back and understand the general truth that God is trying to communicate to us. That God is on his throne and it is a glorious place. You have to go back into into 90 AD. Most of life, for most of us, was pretty basic. A third world country kind of basic existence. And yet there were a few places, and Rome was the chief among them, where if you went there, you just stood in awe. Because these buildings were covered in white marble. And you'd never seen anything like that. Your house was probably a a log hut or a cave. Or just some basic wood plaster structure. And then you go to Rome and you see these marble buildings, and some of the idols, some of their gods and goddesses, were covered in gold plate. And they just shone, and you were like, wow. And John comes along and says, let me tell you about God's throne. Let me tell you about heaven. You saw one shiny gold statue. And he uses all of these terms. Now, they didn't have multimedia movies to help. And so what John has to use is the brightest things anybody thought of and knew at that time. Glowing emeralds, rainbows, all of this, a sea of crystal glass, because those were the only terms they could understand. But what he was trying to get them to see is not the details. And and my pet peeve people who study Revelation and want to focus on the detail, how do you have an emerald that's a rainbow? It's poetic. It's trying to give you a picture of this glorious God in this glorious heaven that is so far beyond anything you've seen in Rome or Ephesus or Alexandria. This God is way above that. And with this God are the people of God. 24 thrones, 24 elders, 12 are the tribes of the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God. And just like them are 12 apostles, the New Testament people of God. And all of these people of God are now royalty. They've suffered your suffering, but guess what? In heaven, you are a royal. You have a white robe and a golden crown. Because that's what's coming for the people of God. No more persecution, no more lions in the Colosseum. The God who is way above Rome, who is glorious and mighty... In this throne that is beyond imagine, He will take the people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they will be royal with him. And all creation is worshipping this God. He is above all creation. The beast of the lion, which is that ferocious king of the beasts. The ox that has all strength. And the man, which is humanity, and the eagle that soars, all creation is bowing and worshiping this God. Because he's greater. He's above all of creation because he created it. And all of this is what is coming. This is what is going to come to pass. It was easy under persecution to look at Rome and its power and its legions and say, what chance do we have? And what John wanted the Christians to see is there is a far greater God and a far greater reality waiting for us. And we need to hear that message again. We are in no way in a time of persecution, but clearly there are things in our world that frustrate us. There are times when it seems like evil evil is so powerful and it's winning. At such times, we need again that vision of heaven and our God. And how great He is. He is above all. And all creation worships Him. And He has committed that one day we will rule with Him in white robes and golden crowns. You see, that is a message of hope. Don't be afraid. Keep your hand in Jesus' hand, because this is what is coming. There is another message of revelation that God gives them to prepare them, because he he needs to be up front. Things are going to get worse. And what you see in a lot of revelation is this plague and, and this evil and this beast. And this prostitute and and these evil powers seem to grow. And from 90 A.D. for the next 200 years, that is exactly what the Christians experienced. But you see, there is hope in the very fact that my God warned me this was coming. Now there's one more message, so when I get that, then I can hold on for the persecution time. As things get worse, because it's going to end well. But there is a warning here. Bad things are coming. There will be this Antichrist rise. And I have to confess to you, I, I'm a student of history. And every time a bad person arises, the Christians get all nervous and say, he's the Antichrist, she's the Antichrist. But if you study history, the Christians have said that so often, The truth is, any of us feel like, and and it may be in one sense, this evil leader may be the Antichrist, but don't assume he's the final one, and it's the end. They thought Attila the Hun was the Antichrist. They thought the Kaiser in World War I was the Antichrist. Then Hitler was the Antichrist, but the end didn't come. And then Khrushchev, I'm old enough, Khrushchev was the Antichrist in the Soviet era. And the Soviet Union's gone. I don't know. But you see, I don't think God's point was to figure out the physical human name of the Antichrist. His point was a warning. Evil's going to grow. And when you see evil grow and gain power, don't panic. Don't give up. I warned you this would happen. But there's another message left in the book. So hold on to my hand. I will not abandon you, God says. We're going to have to walk through this. But I'm going to fix it. And you see, that's the real message that is at the end of Revelation. I will fix this. I see, I see you in Pergamum. I see what you're going through. I know the Antichrist will arise. I know there will be plagues and and blood and suffering. I know that. But trust me, I am going to fix this. Let's read one more passage. Revelation 20. It's the final part of the book. It's the final message that God wanted us to hear through John. I want to read a couple sections from chapter 20. Start with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and who, him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. The old broken world gone. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Hades is the abode of the dead, not hell. You need to understand that. So the the place where all the dead have been gave them up. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They're not needed anymore. There's no more death. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. But now in 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will be gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That is the promise of the book of Revelation. That was the vision God gave John. You're going to face a time of suffering. And I need to warn you, it will get very bad at times. And we look back 2,000 years and say that's exactly what's happened. But we have, throughout that 2,000 years, we have retained this Jesus who walks with us and sees what we're facing. And this God who dwells in us through this seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and who says, I will not abandon you. I will be the good shepherd who walks with you through the valley of deep darkness. Because one day I will end this. And there will be accountability. And all those who have thought they've gotten away with evil, gotten away with ignoring me and claiming their God, they will be held accountable. But those who have claimed the name of Jesus, that which they have done, they will enter my reward with their white robe and their gold crown. And I will fix it. Every one of us looks at things in this world and says, it shouldn't be that way. Somebody gets away with something, a corrupt business makes a boatload of money, whatever pushes your button, we all have them. We just sort of have to turn off the news because we get so upset. And at our core, we're saying, it's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And God says, you're right. It shouldn't. And one day, I'm going to fix it. And that's what the last couple chapters of Revelation picture. What it's going to be like when he fixes it. Evil is removed. And as far as I understand, theologically and biblically, the punishment of evil is just that they're going to all be together with themselves. And that will be a boatload of punishment with all good removed. But the focus of Revelation isn't their punishment. The focus of Revelation is the perfection the righteous get to enjoy. To live forever in a world that isn't broken. Where we don't sit there and say it shouldn't be that way. Because it's right. It's perfect. It's good. And God is right there with us. No more praying to this unseen spiritual being. He's with us. And all of creation is perfected. And that's what God tells the Christians to say, hold on for that. No matter how powerful evil gets, hold on for that. I'm coming. I'm going to fix it. And it's going to be so good. I don't know if you've ever watched Extreme Makeover. It's a fascinating show that even the hardest heart will tend to cry about. Except me, I never cry. But <laughs> If you haven't seen Extreme Makeover, they, they will go into a town, an area, a neighborhood, and they will pick some family that has had terrible suffering. It could be an economic crisis and they've ended up losing their home. Uh, They're living in a travel trailer. Their house is infested with mold, and everybody's got asthma and lung infections. Whatever the circumstance, it's a terrible suffering. And then they take this family, and they send them to Disney World. And obviously, this is all planned out, but the whole community comes around them and rebuilds their home, or builds them an entirely new home. And then this bus is always parked there. And they bring the family back. The whole town that did all the work is there. And then they bring the family back in a limo with the windows blackened. So they don't see it. And then they get them out right in front of the bus so they can't see. And I like this one because there's sort of a hint of, boy, there's some cool house behind that bus. And then, of course, the whole crowd starts chanting, move the bus, move the bus. It's not hyped or anything like that, but no, they do. They, they hype it up, and everybody's cheering, move the bus, and then, of course, the bus moves. Today, we're still here. We can't see everything God has for us, but Revelation says, let me tell you what's behind the bus. And there's a day coming when Christ comes and says, Move the bus for us, for our world, for all of our relatives, for everybody. And says, this is the new home I have prepared for you, where everything is perfect. So hold on to my hand. Walk with me, because there's a day coming. We're going to move the bus. Father there's no way we can claim to be persecuted like those Christians. But there's times it gets tough for us to have faith, to follow you, to stand out in the crowd, to be different, to come to church and try and live as a Christian. But Father, help us see to see your warning It's going to get tough at times. Jesus said they're going to hate us because they hated him. But you are with us. And you are preparing a home for us beyond our imagination. A perfect world where there's no more tears. There's no more sadness. There's no more brokenness in our lives or our families or our homes or our businesses where everything is made new. May that hope give us strength to walk with you. In your son's name, amen.